0: Welcome to OGGN's Mixer Connections Podcast. Here each month, the insights and stories from the people and companies that make our industry mixers possible are captured while also allowing us to contribute to charity. So, here's your host, Kamal Carr.
1: Mixer Connection Podcast, Episode 1, and I'm not even supposed to be here. Our host, Kamal, had to travel. This is Mark LaCour with the Orngas Global Network. But I am honored to be here. I'm sitting here with the gang from Emerson and Grit. Why don't y'all really quickly introduce yourselves?
0: Sure. Aiden Ann from Emerson. I'm director of business development and on the executive leadership team of our IIoT platform, ZI. I'm Cody Edgerton. I'm a strategic account executive
2: here with Emerson. Been with the group 10 years, live here nearby Houston,
1: and that's about it. Yeah, Cody, don't come off the mic. Quit turn your chair.
3: Nah, I'm, I'm learning. This is new. Yeah, I, I don't know, I know what to do with my hands. Yeah, it's fine. I'm John Allison, VP of Corp Dev with Grit Oil and Gas, and I've known these Ade guys for quite a few Wait, years. Wait, what'd you call us? Ade guys? Oh, sorry. sorry. Emerson. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, so you mentioned IOT. If our audience has no idea cuz this is not the technology podcast, what does IIoT stand for and what does it really mean?
0: John, I'm going to have you
3: start. So, IOT is Industrial Internet of Things, and I think the best way to describe it is most likely think of your nest that you would have at home, but for an industry like oil and gas, something more industrial, hence the industrial I, in IoT. <laughs>
1: yeah. Now, IoT has become a buzzword. A lot of vendors throwing it left and right. But Emerson has a very, very long history of process controls. Any major, huge facility out there at some point probably had Emerson touch it, refineries, petrochemical plants, pipelines. So y'all been doing this way before the buzzword IOT came out, right? You've been doing it since it's simple SCADA and process controls, but even Emerson has evolved and y'all now are doing some really cool stuff, especially in the oil and gas industry to help with emissions. Can we talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And IIOT definitely comes into play for that from a control system perspective, SCADA, like you just mentioned emerson's been in there for decades when we look at some of our technology plays like ZI, we've been a cloud-based iot edge data buffering control type system for 20 plus years before all the buzzwords even got there so you hit the nail on the head when we tied into emissions and again emerson's been doing this for a long time from an IIoT perspective this is how fast can you get data from your well site that's applicable to emissions to your data management systems. So anything from methane detection to generalized leak detection to ESG applications, like keeping your field people out of the field and remotely monitoring your assets, all kind of go into the entire emission reduction portfolio that Emerson has.
1: Yeah, boy, we touched a bunch of things we have to explain to the audience, because once again, this is not the technical, all long tech My bad, my bad, I'm an engineer. This is the (laughs) best way to help. (laughs) So you, you mentioned edge. Let's talk a little bit, real quickly, what is that and why is it so important in oil and gas?
0: I'm always going to defer this to John as, <laughs> as the producer, so I'm not doing a
1: sales pitch. So, John, fire Yeah, away.
3: I think fundamentally, you know, one of the things I think most people in oil and gas are pretty comfortable with is this notion of SCADA.
0: Well, albeit a lot of
3: people would use kind of a SCADA as an analog for IoT in the oil field, that's not necessarily the case. Generally speaking, you know, when we bring up the notion of what an edge device is, you almost have to segment it from where the process control, where the logic is actually done. And so like an edge device, for example, would be, you know, out in the field, you might have like a smart lact or something like that, that has a computer that's built into it. That's, you know, got a logic, it's got a logic application. It's doing its own, you know, function, not autonomously, but it's doing it within, you know, within its own understanding of inputs and outputs. And then, you know, where kind of a lot of edge devices come together, they may, you know, be part of one single network that becomes a platform. And ultimately that ends up, you know, you might see that the end result of your edge devices on a SCADA platform to where you're interacting with a bunch of these different devices. And those devices, you might have multiple edge devices that are communicating with each other at a lower level. And then ultimately you're seeing the end result. And the goal is to maximize the efficiency of all of those, you know, lower level process units kind of communicating. And then, you know, if you want to think about it, like you've got, you know, if you're in an orchestra, right, the conductor may be the person who's utilizing a platform that's full of a bunch of different edge devices that albeit might be, they're going to be communicating with each other, but you still have somebody who's overseeing it and making sure that it's, you know, actually doing what it's supposed to.
1: Yeah. So another way to look at the edge devices is in oil and gas. We tend to operate in the middle of nowhere and there tends not to be great connectivity. And so you can't take all this data that you're collecting at the job site and send it back necessarily. And so the edge can actually process that data at the job site and only send back maybe the exceptions, like the parts and pieces that you need, which then allow us still to capture the important parts of that data. That seems like that is an amazing way to bring high technology in the middle of the Permian, right? Because you get too far off a dirt road to Permian, there is no cell coverage, right? There's there's no connectivity. So one of the other things that you talked about was bringing the data back to your data storage, right? So we're talking cloud, basically, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. we're talking cloud.
1: Yeah. yeah, and so cloud, one of the cool things about cloud is now in 2023, you can do a lot of computations, a lot of work in the cloud itself instead of bringing that data back. I do have a question, though. With what we're talking about now, especially around emissions, you know, the oil and gas industry historically has had all their data siloed, right? And it, so this group didn't talk to this group. This database was a different dig- configuration. This database, y'all have cracked that, haven't y'all? You talked about Zed. I did a little research before I got you yeah, on the microphone. You
0: know, from a ZI perspective, and I'll give it to you in a second here. From
1: a ZI perspective, absolutely.
0: We're trying to normalize the market from a data exchange perspective, cloud in between cloud, doesn't necessarily have to be Emerson, everyone kind of working together for the greater good and ease of communication between all these different databases that are typically in the cloud. And IIoT in general, natively practiced the best way is cloud hosted and cloud native applications. So it's an eventuality that all these different clouds from technology companies, not just Emerson, anyone, need to be able to interact together. And it's something that we are actively looking at normalizing through what we call data exchange. But it's been going well with a bunch of different previously considered competitors are now becoming partners.
1: This is right where I wanted to bring Cody in from, from a business development point of view. It's like the old way of doing stuff is you tried, and I don't mean you, Cody, yourself or your company, but the industry as a whole tried to lock down its customers and proprietary technology, right? And that's disappearing. It's amazing to see that you're able to, once like you said, work with your competitors, but also it sounds like you're also cloud provider agnostic, right? Does it matter if it's AWS or if it's Azure or if it's Google, you, you work with all of them?
2: We can. I mean, primarily we're going to be on Azure right now, but I mean, on the data exchange piece itself, and we do that with the Grit today, none of the deals or larger migrations I do right now you're sharing that data with other systems within those organizations. Like It is a must. So just a simple, I think we do a SQL push and then to FlowCal, Like you have to take what we're going to call the SCADA data right now and share that with either production accounting, other information, but keeping it in the cloud, it allows customers like Grit to be scalable. They can focus on their business. They don't have to worry about servers, IT the historian, it just makes everything
1: very scalable, yeah. very easy. We did not rehearse this. That was where I was going with this next. Thank you for the segue. Mm, yeah, he's a PD guy. He's a sales guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's scalability. <laughs> so, you know, scalability is important to things like retail, especially if you have an online business and it's holiday season, you're doing 10,000 times more tractions than you're doing in the summer. But scalability is also important to the oil and gas industry. Dependent on the number of job sites or even well sites that you have. And once again, you're able to scale to whatever your customers need.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: It's a must. I mean, because right now, especially when the market's good, you want the customers to be focusing on their production, on what they do day to day, not really focusing on the SCADA piece or just IT in general. I mean, that's the old mentality and, and really you just need to upgrade right now and move into the SaaS model, move into the cloud. That's where it's at. These edge devices, IoT, all the cool buzzwords, but it actually drives efficiency within those organizations. So it's not selling it. It's not a pitch. It's true. I do it at my house. I relate it back to what I do in my real world outside of the Emerson business. And it's, it's still, it's, it's just where technology is today. And it's an easy button. So I can focus more on my family or whatever else I need to do at my house. And it translates to our customers and what Emerson provides. Yeah, that's two perfect
1: He's in the road, dude. We, we do this more <laughs> often. Because the next place I was going with this is literally we need to drive efficiencies, both our impacts in environment, but also because of things like the IRA, our, our ability to measure things like emissions. And that's a big data problem. And what we don't want is 400,000 tabs on a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet, right? We want some equipment to monitor all this, to do the calculations, and then only let somebody know on a dashboard somewhere if something's not what it should be. And, and this is literally what you're talking about is using technology to eliminate all the different human inputs and processes so that the technology itself can drive the efficiency.
2: Mm-hmm. And we even talked kind of in our pre brainstorming session we had to, before hopping on this podcast, but like then you get inundated with too much data. Yep. So, like, what do you do with that? And how do you prioritize and structure that? So, you're really getting the most critical information, using that to be more efficient, and then, you know, setting up structures to, you know, backfill the other information that comes in. But it's a big topic. And it's that scalability piece again is just huge for the customers. And if you run into, an older customer, an older mindset that's, you know, maybe has an existing on-prem system, it works, but you can easily help them put a business case together or some KPIs to, you know, build that business case or ROI around it just to round the scalability efficiency. Like, what could you do? How can you make one pumper that maybe works a 50-well route work a 100-well route? I mean, or we've talked briefly on ESG. I mean, there's keep him out of the field. What if he can actually be doing it from his laptop at the field office and only be troubleshooting real issues as opposed to just driving around and looking for one. There's all kinds of angles that you could tackle with all these topics that we've thrown out there. Yeah, And
3: I, I think, I mean, from an ESG perspective, I mean, obviously one of the biggest things that we can do is ensuring that our people are most efficient and keeping trucks off the road. I mean, that's one of the biggest aspects of, you know, our industry is that a lot of it is truck related, but being able to ensure that we can do, you know, more with less as well as being able to focus and you know actually look at things from an exception base as opposed to just hey this is how we do it. This is how we did it 10 years ago this is how we did it 20 years ago we're going to keep doing it today it's like no let's actually try to be good stewards of you know what we're actually trying to do efficiently and making sure that there's a sustainability aspect of that to where it can keep going
1: yeah let's not dance around the issue most of the lost time incidents and, unfortunately, deaths that are happening, especially in the shell plays in the Permian, are vehicle accidents, right? And if we can keep those guys off the road, if we don't have to roll a truck at 4 in the morning because something went down because you're able to do preventive maintenance, it saves people's lives, right? So that's huge. The HSD component is huge. And I don't, I don't want to glaze over that. The other thing you mentioned is the ESG metrics. You know, everybody's being measured on this. Every public company that's in the oil and gas industry is being measured on this. And they're also, at some point, start being taxed on the methane or natural gas that's being produced, not just the methane that escapes fugitive emissions, right? And so we're also talking about impacting the company's bottom line. Literally, these efficiencies, besides increasing production, which we talked about, besides decreasing accidents and lost time incidences, you're actually talking real dollars here that are measurable. And I'm sure you all have case studies where you can actually show what those dollars look like.
0: Absolutely. and actually it goes even reverse of that, not necessarily obviously here in Texas, but if you look in the Rockies in Canada, you'll get carbon credits. So you, it's actually revenue generating for you in a way to actually do methane reduction. And then of course, implementing like penalties and stuff like that. Absolutely. That's something that's going to happen fairly fast globally. And it's something that has to be measured, has to be measured well. And we've talked a lot, a bunch of scenarios to so not just straight exact methane reduction sensors, But even metrics for publicly traded companies of how much did you get somebody off the road, equating that to emission reductions, GHGs, NOx, SOx, all that kind of stuff, is quantifiable, either penalty avoidance or potentially revenue generation through carbon credits.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I run a podcasting company, OGG, and we're actually going down that route internally because I believe a carbon tax is coming to the U.S., regardless of what political administration's in office at the time. And so I want to kind of get ahead of that. It's much harder. I run a small company, 28 people, and we're podcasters, right? It's much harder to actually do those calculations than you think it is. It takes a little bit of time to get it right. We know.
0: Yeah, yeah I guess you do, know. It's you do It's what you do. Yeah,
1: I do want to come back, though. One of the things that I've noticed is, With what y'all are doing, you're literally freeing up engineers' time to actually be engineers instead of scrubbing Microsoft Excel sheets for bad data, right? So they're actually, in some ways, you're allowing them to do what they're really good at instead of making them sit there and clean up bad data. That's a real productivity plus too.
3: Oh, that's huge. I mean, and kind of, we touched on it briefly, but one thing that, at least for me, I want to make sure that everybody's aware of having... IIoT being cloud-based and now since things are more agnostic and the benefit is having the data exchange either via an API or via just having data readily available to be pushed and pulled from different source systems allows a business or especially for our business to take a traditional problem. Which is, hey, we've got siloed information and being able to look at it more holistically and really just kind of have it mirror what we're actually doing to be able to create efficiencies, to be able to figure out where your bottlenecks are, which is really, again, back to the, you know, ultimately what engineering is, is to try, you know, for us, I love the fact that, you know, we have a platform, but also a vehicle for our engineers to be able to look at, you know, all of the different type of data collectively to be able to make a decision or also be able to identify where we deficient that we need to start gathering that data to be able to make an even better decision at a later point in time. We're right now, you know, especially we're seeing this opening. And I think that, you know, most, most platforms or most companies that you know, maybe historically they had their own proprietary data set that they, you know, they locked into a box and they're like, Hey, guess what? If you want to do some more, you got to bolt on something else. Well, now it's almost like this blossoming of like, everybody realizes that in order to have a better product a better something or other you have to be able to do, you know take and give and pass you know that data and generate actually like insights and information and be able to you know allow people to really effectively fine tune what they're trying to do their core business as opposed to just you know i don't know being spreadsheet monkeys
1: right yeah and audience if you're hearing what it sounds like saxophone in the background it actually is saxophone in the background we're recording this at our industry mixer let's see how much of the background noise our editor can get out all right so let's this is all great stuff you got the history of emerson you got grit kicking and butt and taking names driving efficiencies helping with safety missions, all stuff let's talk real business stuff in oil i guess so stuff that people are always concerned about number one cybersecurity. Let's talk through that a little bit. Everybody's Oh, oh at Come you. on. Yeah. Where we want to go with cybersecurity. So, I mean,
2: it's, and it actually, I'll pause. So, like that actually, for any of our majors that we work with, it's the first discussion point. It's a major talking point. So, what compliance do you have? What SOC 2 documents do you have? What, you know, the whole structure around it? That's the first big deal. And I'm actually helping support our world area, the Middle East and Africa world area. I mean, you take the whole, UAE, everything over there. It's all data residency and cybersecurity. Like, It's a really big topic, first and foremost. So it's something that we have to go through. And the easy button for me, for most of my customers, especially in the U.S., is like, who do you bank with? Do you have an online banking app? You trust your personal funds to be in here, and you have a mobile app you can go on there. We have to go through the same steps as any of your mobile banking apps. So if you're comfortable with your own money being in the cloud, why can't your production data be in the cloud? That usually will ease the conversation. Obviously, you still got to follow up with the proper documentation and everything that we go through. But like, that's usually the first little little snid bit that I will get into to like, try and derail the cybersecurity, not derail, to ease that cybersecurity conversation around having it in the cloud, where's it hosted, who has control of the information, who can access it, all the above. So that's that's my two cents on, so, on the cybersecurity side I to throw this
1: in because it's a coincidence. So listeners to this, don't think this is going to happen every time if you sponsor a Mixer Connection or an Industry Mixer. But Cody there's a senior person from Marathon Oil Africa that's in the crowd this afternoon. I'll make an introduction to you. I nice. Comments, nice. Please do. Would it be cool if you actually started a conversation with somebody that could use what you're doing right at our industry mixer? Actually, maybe I shouldn't have said that. That's not common. Maybe I should say that happens all the yeah, time. The, that's I not, mean, that's the, time. that's the point of the mixer, right?
0: That's why we're here. Yeah. All <laughs>
1: right. So cybersecurity, you've answered that question. Next thing is if I'm a large company, I have a, millions of dollars in legacy systems that are different than what my competitors have, how do you come in? Do I have to forklift what I'm using now? Or are you able to come in and work with my existing IT footprint?
2: I mean, I would say it depends. I mean, really what the pitch I or the angle I'll go for is I want to build a business case. So if we can utilize what you have there and it works, we can transfer the data by all means, let's not rip and replace But in some instances, you may have to. So what are you paying for that currency system? What does it cost to maintain? How many IT people do you have to have? Like, what is the true cost of it? And then compare it to our SaaS model or our platform. And then usually we can come out ahead on that one. But it's getting someone to really peel back those layers and assess what their costs are especially an older legacy system. They're heavily invested in it. You know, the process is there. They have all the right team members in place. So it's a hard discussion to really get them to peel it away. But we've done it time and time again. We have all kinds of case studies to throw at them. We have a lot of data to throw at them. But getting them to really look at it big picture and how much they can offload. And let's compare cost into the, the day. And we usually don't lose on cost. It's really a mindset and a philosophy around how the data is stored and, the mindset of that organization.
3: And as of having been somebody who's been on the other side of that. Both sides. Yeah, yeah, Like, you're perfect. Yeah, I know. But one of the things I will say is that the concern, you know, it's obviously, it's a loss of control aspect. And I think one of the things that, at least for me, having, you know, been on-prem or uh, skate a platform in the cloud has been the fact is, is that, you know, it's required some retraining. But at the same time is the reality is once you get over that hump, You realize how much more you can do by being able to offload some of the more mundane maintenance type things to the guys who are actually experts in it. And the fact that things generally are able to communicate more readily eliminates a lot of those silos from at the end of the day, you know, the last thing you want to be is having Ben, who is currently also the head of our IT, is the last thing you want to be is a roadblock to be able to make sure that the business can move forward. And in fact, again, once you make that transition, you're like, wow, I don't have to be, you know, the bleeding edge cybersecurity person. I can make sure the experts are that. I don't have to be the infrastructure guy who's maintaining you know, a legacy asset that is, you know, end of life about to be terminated. I can make sure that the guys who have the staff to maintain or migrate it, or even are the experts in that particular thing, they can focus on doing, you know, what they do. And really the collective group can focus on kind of steering the ship and making sure that that integration is not only just seamless, but continues to grow more so to where, again, you can do more with less from that perspective, as opposed to trying to, you know, keep a, what is really ultimately a dinosaur alive.
1: Yeah, I remember the days when CIOs in this industry said, I will never have my information in the cloud. Everything is on-prem, and they would hit the table. And as soon as the cost savings started showing up and the flexibility, that's another big part. And also, we mentioned cybersecurity. In some ways, cybersecurity in the cloud is actually better than on-prem. It's just different, and you just have to understand that it's different. But, you know, we're an Office 365 shot, and the reason we're an Office 365 shot is that Microsoft is much more of an expert at managing all that sort of stuff than we are. And so I depend on them to maintain a good ship, and our uptime is incredible. I mean, my people anywhere in the world can have access to anything we do. So I want to bring it back to the business, though. So we talked about cybersecurity. We talked about can you work with my existing IT infrastructure footprint culture. This industry hates change. Doesn't like anything new for a reason, Right. But what you're talking about just a few years ago would have been almost probably impossible to get people to really look at hard. Maybe I shouldn't say a few years ago, 10 years ago. But now I'm starting to see the long ass industry change and say, you know what, we can do more with less. We can't, we embrace the cloud, right? Or a hybrid cloud type of thing. Are y'all seeing the same thing where finally this old fashioned industry is starting to go, yeah, we need new technology, help us?
0: Yeah, take it away. Okay. Yeah, I would say absolutely. You know, the easiest way to kind of do an example of that is basically everyone in the oil and gas industry and on planet Earth that is communicating with anyone has a smartphone. Yep. So having that, everyone knows how to use apps. When we talk about IIoT, we talk about cloud-based data management in the oil and gas industry. You're basically, they already have the tool in their hands. They already know how to use it. It's just a new app that they have to download. And then boom, their entire operation is in their hand. Or if you're an executive, an overarching entire business is in your hand. So that adoption of technology outside of oil and gas has made it easier. Cody made a great example, and John made a great example, Nest and banking. So cloud adoption is occurring outside of oil and gas anyway. So that is making it it easier. One of the legacy things that we're seeing in oil and gas is workflow, right? So being comfortable with software systems, with hard non-edge device type hardware, that is kind of like a barrier that we're having to go through because there's an education around it. But I think you would just hit the nail on the head. It's almost impossible right now to do a business case that would make sense from an ROI perspective, cloud versus physical servers or the old way or old school PLCs, programmable logic controllers, controlling everything in the field versus edge devices. So because the ROI is there, it's naturally forcing the issue. And you also touched on a good point is the hybrid right? So that's how you go from legacy to like full-blown cloud adoption, IOT adoption. Not every company is going to be like grit, oil, and gas. Congratulations. Dial to 11, go straight technologically advanced. So that hybrid model and that combination of legacy versus cloud is something that is happening very, very regularly. So the barriers are there, but they're breaking down at a fairly rapid pace.
1: Yeah. I smiled when you said PLCs. How many old PLCs that are still operating in oil and gas right now still have the default username and password still set up?
0: <laughs> admin, admin. <laughs> admin, it's
2: 100%.
1: No, it's one, one, two, three, four,
2: five. And something else you touched on, you said about 10 years ago. So for the, really, for me, just being on the sales side of it, it was about five years ago whenever it became easy talking about cloud yeah. and, and the platform. Before then, it was an uphill sell. You were really pushing a product that was non-traditional in our industry. And it's still, I mean, it just, I mean, smartphones, banking, all the above, it's taken a complete 180 and it's a different topic. You know, it's the technology people would like to have. Now, where are they at? What are their plans? Are they acquisition, drill bit growth? You know, what what does their structure look like? That'll All those factors go into it. But I mean, about five years ago, it, it went just a completely different conversation.
1: You know, what's cool is for most of my life, CIOs and chief technologies officers in oil and gas always wanted to be brought to the table as business partners. And quite honestly, they weren't because they didn't understand the business. And I'm starting to see that change a lot because the companies like y'all and what you're doing, where you're bringing the business hard metrics, where you're bringing revenue, cash flow in. And so it's cool to see the CIOs, the CTOs in this industry finally be brought to the technology. I actually really think a lot of that credit goes to the vendors out there that show the heads of technology and oil and gas how they could be an asset to the business. I love it, right? Once you see, it's one of the things about things like big box retail. You go to like Walmart or Home Depot, technology is their competitive differentiator, right? If I can save 3% here or 2% there from a new piece of software, it's done. We need that here. And I think it's starting to happen. I think it's really cool. And I love the fact that y'all are like going wide open. And I shouldn't say that. I'm sure y'all y'all evaluate everything. I'm sure you look at risk of doing anything new, but- They're wide open.
0: know <laughs> <I>, <laughs> but like- well, y- you,
3: you have to be, like to a degree, to be on the cutting edge, that's part of it, right? You've got to be able to assess- very quickly think on your feet, but also at the same time, be able to conceptualize how can something fit in very quickly and start to broaden it to where maybe some piece of technology is brought to you and you're like, hey, you know, somebody's trying to sell it in one particular fashion. You're like, wait, actually, if I take this, I can do use it for this. I can integrate it here. I can do it right here. I can do it right there. And then all of a sudden you've got a partnership. You don't have somebody who's just trying to sell you a widget or somebody who just developed a a line of code. You've got something that is now much more, it's like an artist with a painting, right? Somebody gave you a paintbrush, And then you're like, hey, guess what? We're going to paint this picture together and it's going to be awesome and we're going to do it great. You're going to be able to take this, you know, everybody's learning at the same time and you're going to be able to take this. You can sell it to other people. You can help them, you know, start creating their own narrative of what the future that they want to see. At the same time, we're going to do that and then we're going to start pulling everything together. And at the end of the day, you know, what it creates is sustainability. It creates efficiency and functionally. First and foremost, everybody enjoys it, right? I mean, nobody wants to go and have, you know, go to their work and just of a, you know, a drudgery of just doing the same old thing that they did 20 years ago. And again, a lot of people like doing that, but at least the culture that we have with grit and then the partnerships that we have, the relationships, the friendships that we have generally lead to this, you know, that next level. And I mean, it really is turning it up to 11, but every, you have to.
1: So I got to ask you, when and I'm just making this up in my head, but you know, when you originally started your relationship with Emerson, and they showed you some really cool stuff that actually could help the business, and you had to go back and you had to sell this internally, right? What was that conversation like?
3: Well, I mean, I would say my well, my relationship with Emerson. I mean, it started at the beginning of my career as Emerson as a whole, but ultimately, when it came down to you know their their cloud skater platform ZI. We were in the middle of a transition and actually was at a former company. I've worked with these guys on multiple implementations through multiple companies, but fundamentally it was like, hey, we have limited visibility because we had a skate a platform, but it really didn't allow us I struggled because I couldn't actually, I could interact with some of the information, maybe some high level, but I couldn't do what I wanted to do. So at least for at the time, because we were in a transition, it really wasn't too much of a hard sell because it was very quickly and understood that, hey, the ROI is there. However, at a former company, we did have an on-prem SCADA platform that was very old school and... If you wanted to have a bunch of changes, you had to go through one person who you may even had to explain what you wanted, why you wanted, to go through all of these, you know, processes that were great, but they just the business was moving forward and the process was slowing it down. And that was a hard sell to try to migrate over because I think it was just fundamentally was there was a disconnect between you know the it side the you know hey we got all these other applications and any sort of transition is just going to cause a lot of work something might break we don't we're not understanding and so i have been at an organization where that adoption is difficult but frankly i've been lucky at least the last two organizations that it's a pretty easy sell as it should be and i think you know i think that the easiest thing is hey I've got an app that I can I don't have to worry about the security. I don't even have, I don't have to worry about the uptime. I don't even have to worry about you know what platform I'm using if it's iOS or Android and I can go see it and I can customize it to how I want to do it and if I need to actually interact with a well or if I need to do something and I need to communicate with somebody else about it, it's right there ready to go for me And so then all of a sudden it's like hey, that's the beginning to me. That's the transition is like, Hey, if you can't do that as seamless. And I mean, that's like a, that's not a 2023 type of discussion. That is a 2015, a 2010. Right. It's a, an introduction of a smartphone discussion. So if you're not having that discussion right now, and if you're not having that capability right now, you're absolutely behind.
1: Yeah. I do want to pause for a moment for all the business development people and salespeople that are listening to this. I hope you caught what he said. So because of the high trust previous relationships he had with Emerson, as he moved companies, it became easier for Emerson to help his newer company because of the change in culture. That would have never happened if y'all didn't maintain those relationships, have that high trust transparent where you're not trying to sell him something he doesn't want, but just being a resource. So hats off to y'all. I love good salespeople, right? And that's what good salespeople do is they help their customers solve problems. And if right now is not a good time, maybe somewhere in the future it will be. Love that.
2: He's just too busy now, so it's easier to sell. (laughs) Prior organizations, he liked to haggle. He made us work for it. We earned it. We
1: earned it. Yeah. So we're going to get close to winding this thing down. I still want to stay on the business track. So final discussion, final question. If companies are on the edge, if they realize they need to do something, but they don't know what it is, and they want to reach out to Emerson, how does that process work? What happens when a company reaches out to you and says, I think we need help with this? Can you help? What happens?
2: Well, no, that's a good question. I really like just to learn more about their business first. That's usually what I immediately, it's not even a pitch on our offerings or even Emerson's portfolio. Tell me about your business and try and identify those pain points or you know, what they're really trying to improve and then go from there. That's the easy button for me. When I'm quote unquote selling, I don't feel like that's at all part of the process. I mean, I have the preparation. I've done all the pre-work but it's a discussion. What is your business like? What are you trying to do? Where are your goals the next one, three, five years? And how can we help you with that? And then that's when we get the opportunity to talk about what we can offer. And it kind of goes back to how do we help you make a business case and ROI? Whoever I'm talking to, I want to make that individual you know, a shining star or get a promotion in six or 12 months, whatever it can be. But first things first, it's tell me about your business. What are you trying to achieve and why? What are the pain points and restrictions you deal with on a day-to-day basis? And taking that and then, you know, adding the pitch to it is
1: really where I go. Love it. So literally, you're trying to understand if you can help, because maybe you can't. And then if you can help, you're trying to build a champion internally. And so you're trying to arm, I guess is the right word, Mm -hmm. your client with what they need to sell internally. So you're helping Mm -hmm. them help the company.
2: I mean, it's the right way to go. And and a lot of times we may not be a fit, but I can at least between the Emerson portfolio and all the partnerships we have, there's someone I can put you in touch with to get you on the right path. It may be a baby step, but we're going to help you build that ladder to get you where you're going to go. So it's, again, just tell us about what you're doing and we'll help you from there.
1: what a great way to end the podcast i want to give a big shout out to emerson for actually sponsoring our monthly mixer here in march the proceeds will go to a charity called red m to help fight human sex trafficking so thank you gentlemen you Mm -hmm. literally will be helping us save a little girl little boy's life shout out to carbach who's donated the alcohol which i want to go grab a, a beer myself another shout out to endeavor technologies for allowing us to use their facilities So guys, oh, and to grit, (laughs) I got two hats sitting here. Unfortunately, guys, I heard the camera cut off. So I don't know how much video we got. We do got some video. I know we got some pictures, but shout out for grit for coming on the podcast. It's great to hear from a real customer instead of just having a vendor. When I hear from a customer and I can see it in your face while you're talking about them. They're not a vendor to you, are they? They're a partner.
0: No, absolutely. Yeah. He yeah. got promoted recently.
1: We, d- we didn't pay him
2: to
0: come here. Like, <laughs> he, he actually enjoys Cody these topics. On that, yeah. like, it, yeah. it, it is <laughs> a true partnership. He got his promotion. You delivered. Yeah. Yeah. All right,
1: So, but if you're listening to this and you engage with Cody, don't think that you're automatically going to get a promotion, right? <laughs> it may happen. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so in the show notes, if you're listening, we'll have the links to everybody's LinkedIn profile. We'll also have a link to Emerson, also to Grit. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, Mark.
0: Check us out next month for another engaging episode of the Mixer Connections podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.